Battle over the border. Operation Lone Star leaders fight allegations of mistreatment as opponents from all sides call out new razor wire and buoy installations on the Rio Grande. The potential international incident this could cause as the number of migrant encounters drops to the lowest level in months. A looming showdown inside the halls of the Capitol with the first two special sessions finally over and an impeachment trial weeks away. I hope external pressures will, will not play a part in what I think is a, is a very important uh, piece of democracy. And the House Speaker, one-on-one. -on -one. Our conversation with Dade Phelan about the property tax package passed by lawmakers and the work they still expect the governor will ask them to perform this year. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Josh Hinkle. A legal battle brewing over the border with reports the Biden administration will sue Texas over new security measures along the Rio Grande. On Thursday, the Department of Justice sent this letter to Governor Greg Abbott. It informs him the DOJ plans to sue over the new buoys placed in the river for violating the Rivers and Harbors Act and obstructing a navigable body of water. It also addresses humanitarian concerns. On Friday, Governor Greg Abbott tweeted out his response, quote, we will continue to deploy every strategy to protect Texans and Americans and the migrants risking their lives. We will see you in court, Mr. President. All of this follows a request from Democrats in Congress to intervene, as well as word the Texas Office of Inspector General will look into claims of mistreatment. The Houston Chronicle's initial report alleges state troopers were told to deny migrants drinking water and push them back into the river. A spokesperson for the Department of Public Safety denies troopers have been ordered to do this. The report cites a state trooper's email to a sergeant earlier this month detailing some of the things they saw in Eagle Pass. That's the same area where Operation Lone Star started buoy installation to deter migrants and where concertina wire or razor wire has already been strung in places. The governor's office, DPS, and the Texas Military Department issued a joint statement. They insisted there is not a policy directive instructing troopers to act as claimed in the Houston Chronicle report. They added all personnel assigned are prepared to detect and respond to anyone in distress. And they also verbally warn to people and use signs to direct them to ports of entry. They also added once again the state is using every tool and strategy to deter illegal crossing. This isn't the only pushback for this Operation Lone Star project. Concern continues to mount from groups worried about the environmental impact. There's already a lawsuit filed by a Texan telling us the buoys have negatively impacted his kayaking business. Dispute in Eagle Pass over Texas' latest efforts to secure the border through these buoys. We don't want anybody to get hurt. In fact, we want to prevent people from getting hurt, prevent people from drowning. But opponents say the aquatic barrier will have the opposite effect. All this will do is increase the number of migrant deaths, which are already tragically high. Congresswoman Veronica Escobar and other Texas delegates spelled out their safety and environmental concerns about the buoys in a letter to the Department of Justice, adding that they might also violate international law and treaties with Mexico. My hope would be that the federal government would just go in and, and remove all of that themselves. The buoys could also be removed earlier if an Eagle Pass businessman's lawsuit is successful. His attorney is asking a court to get rid of them, arguing they are already destroying his local kayaking business. 
that the ramp that's used to access the river is blocked. They can't use it now. There's concertina wire, you know, all along this area. If you're a tourist who's looking to maybe have a nice adventure on the river, I'm not sure you want to feel like you're floating down a war zone. Carlos Flores also argues Texas never had the authority to install the floating barriers in the first place. The state is, is acting without authority under the Disaster Act. An issue that could land in the court's fate as soon as this week. The International Boundary and Water Commission tells us the governor's office did not reach out in advance to get a permit or communicate that Texas was installing the buoys. Mexico also formally filed a complaint over the buoys. Leaders there worry the plan violates the 1944 and 1970 treaties on boundaries and water. Mexican inspection teams will deploy to monitor the operations. The Foreign Relations Secretary Alicia Barcena said if the buoys impede the flow of water, it would violate the treaties, which requires the river remain unobstructed. When asked this week in Washington, Republican lawmakers addressed the situation, pointing the finger ultimately at the Biden administration. Some of the tactics that are being used at the border are desperation tactics because, frankly, there's the Biden administration is not doing its job. Texas, as you know, has a 1,200-mile common border with Mexico, so we bear the brunt of this, but it doesn't stop there. Senator John Cornyn and other Republicans also called out the Biden administration for what they say is an unwillingness to find a bipartisan solution. Ahead of the buoy installation, more than 106,000 migrants crossed the southwest border without authorization in June. That's according to the Department of Homeland Security. And that total is combined for those arriving between lawful ports of entry or showing up at the ports without a, booked, a booking online. Federal officials revealed another 38,000 presented themselves at the ports to claim asylum after securing appointments. Add all of it up, and that's more than 144,000 migrant encounters for June. That's a 30% drop from the month before. It also represents the lowest totals since President Biden's first full month in office back in February 2021. The state capitol finally somewhat quiet for the first time in months after the House and Senate passed the property tax deal the governor wanted for two special sessions. An $18 billion package, $13.5 billion of it from the budget surplus. Governor Abbott has promised more special sessions. He's already signaling on his official social media channels that school choice is the issue he wants to tackle. But that likely won't happen until October. That's because suspended Attorney General Ken Paxton's impeachment trial is scheduled for September 5th. Paxton faces 20 articles of impeachment connected to whistleblower allegations of abuse of office and trying to have the state pay a settlement in a resulting lawsuit. This past week, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick issued a sweeping gag order ahead of the trial. This is for Paxton, senators who are jurors, state representatives, even the attorneys and witnesses. The concern is any comments that might unfairly impact and prejudice the process. But the gag order also highlights the pressure facing lawmakers. According to campaign finance reports, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick received $3 million in campaign support from a pro-Paxton political action committee just last month. Defend Texas Liberty PAC contributed a million dollars as well as loaned another $2 million to the Lieutenant Governor's campaign. That news came out a day after the gag order.
Ahead of the gag order, our Monica Madden spoke with the House Speaker, Dade Phelan, about a number of issues. She shows us how lawmakers finally reached a property tax deal to get this on the ballot for voters in November, as well as his thoughts on the upcoming Paxton impeachment trial. Why did it take so long for Republicans to get a deal? It just became the realization that we were at an impasse and we both needed to give something and take something. And the governor, Lieutenant Governor and I just, we just had some very frank discussions about, you know, let's figure out how to land this plane. And because taxpayers are anxious, they want their, you know, they want to, they want to rebate, they want their money back. And we were able to accomplish that. On, on the House's impeachment of Attorney General Ken Paxton, that criticism has come from the state GOP. Of course, the defense lawyers calling the process rushed and unfair and not based on proper evidence. What is your response to that criticism? We were having this discussion because the Attorney General in his office came to the House and Senate and asked for $3.3 million. And we started an investigation to see if that was a worthy use of taxpayer dollars. And we that started months and months and months ago. I stand behind what happened in the House and I'm proud of the work product that the Board of Managers put forth. And uh, we have a good team and it was the right thing to do. Expecting Governor Abbott to call you back for vouchers as well as other educational issues. Do you think that's going to, we're gonna see a repeat this time given how a lot of your rural numbers feel on the voucher program? It's a tremendously complex issue that um, I think requires a laser focus. Assuming the governor has a special session uh, coming forward, that's his decision, not mine, but I think we will have a very robust discussion and maybe some of these ideas um, have, um, broad support. We shall see. Monica also asked Speaker Phelan to respond to Democrats' criticism that the plan doesn't do enough to provide relief for renters. He says the overall decrease in tax rates and the drop in cost of doing business should cause landlords to lower rates. Women who wanted children left in anguish, arguing Texas abortion laws made their pregnancy complications medically worse. I felt so bad. She had no mercy. There was no mercy there for her. But others argue it's the doctors, not the states, who are to blame. It was absolutely mishandled by the medical professionals that were responsible for her health and her child's health. More on the courtroom drama potentially impacting every woman and family across Texas next. Texas abortion laws took center stage this week in Austin with a judge hearing a lawsuit brought by a group of women who say they could not get life-saving medical care while suffering severe complications with their pregnancies. Texas law prohibits most abortions with an exception if the life of the mother is at risk. But the women and physicians suing say the language in the bill is too vague. Our Monica Madden joins us now. You were in court for both days this week. This was emotional. Yeah, absolutely, Josh. It was really tense in there. There was one woman who was testifying saying that she was forced to give birth even though the doctor said that her child would die at about halfway through her pregnancy. So she knew this was a long time coming, but still had to carry her baby to term. When she was recalling everything that happened to her, she started throwing up at the witness stand uh, just from recalling all of that trauma. So the judge then immediately called a recess. So it was very, very emotional in there. An OBGYN doctor, also part of the lawsuit, told the judge that she is just terrified to perform abortions, even if a mother's life is at risk, unless if there is an immediate emergency situation. I've always tried to practice within the standards of care, 
but I also want to be a law-abiding citizen, and I don't want to risk my my freedom, my livelihood, um, and I and I don't want to take a chance that I'm wrong. State attorneys argue that these physicians are misguided, and they say that the law is very clear, and they're asking the judge to dismiss the lawsuit altogether. One doctor who testified for the state echoed that sentiment. Unfortunately, I've seen doctors say that they can't intervene until there's an immediate risk. This is further demonstration that they have not read the law carefully. And I want to read what the law says exactly. The abortion prohibition does not apply when the pregnant woman has a life-threatening physical condition aggravated by, caused by, or arising from a pregnancy that places the female at risk of death or poses a serious risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily function. So that's exactly what the law says word for word, Josh. Monica, during this hearing, experts for plaintiffs said this is what they have to, this issue is exactly what they have to deal with, the exact timing and what's considered risk, right? Yeah, exactly. There was an ER physician who the plaintiffs brought as their expert witness, and he talked about the difference between a critical emergency situation and an emergent one, and there is a difference. When something is critical, think of a gunshot wound, for example, that is something where if doctors don't act immediately, that person will likely die. Whereas an emergent condition is something where they could become life-threatening, but you just don't know what the timing is. So that was the point of these physicians is without clear guidance around how immediately threatening, if it could become life-threatening, these you know uh, pregnancy complications, do they have to act once it gets to the point where it's so bad that a woman is seriously in that critical condition? And that's where there's the confusion. All right, Monica, thank you very much. Soaring temperatures across the state and a rising number of prisoners dying behind bars. I'm scared. I'm feeling my, I haven't even been in here three minutes and I'm feeling my heart pounding. But a bipartisan effort to help inmates and staff withered in the legislature. The hope for a revival next. This weekend marks one of the hottest the state has ever seen. Yes, it is July, but from the Panhandle to the Valley to El Paso to the Arklatex, average daily temperatures have either been just under or well into the triple digits. This past week at the state capitol, former inmates and relatives rallied in protest of hot conditions inside state prisons. They're calling for air conditioning to keep cells under a maximum 85 degrees. In the month and a half, at least 52 inmates have died inside Texas Department of Criminal Justice prisons. Advocates worry many of them succumb to heat-related illnesses. John Anthony Southards, I'm doing this for you, son, because I need to know exactly what my son faced in his last moments. This included the mother of a 36-year-old found unresponsive in his cell late last month. Lawmakers want Governor Greg Abbott to take emergency action in a special session as this hot summer rolls on. This is a state of emergency, people. It's too late for my son, but it's not too late for change, and it needs to happen today. It is up to the governor uh, if he is able to fit this in. Uh, I know that he has a Texas House bipartisan support that's ready for us to respond uh, to this crisis. 
TDCJ declined our invitation to give an interview on this issue. They have told us in the past, though, that core to this department's mission is protecting the public, our employees, and the inmates in our custody. They say they have added about 9,500 more cooled beds since 2018. Governor Abbott has also not yet responded to our request for comment. Joining me now is reporter Ryan Chandler. Ryan, you were at this rally this week, but this is an issue you've been following for a while now. Yeah, Josh, the oppressive heat in Texas prisons is something that TDCJ has known about for decades, but especially as we see these record hot weeks this summer, we've seen increased concern and increased deaths in our Texas prisons. This week, I went through all of the custodial death reports from TDCJ from the beginning of the summer. There's been 60 of them just since June 1st. And out of those, almost a quarter are among young, otherwise healthy people under 40 years old. But we know that TDCJ has not reported a heat-related death officially since 2012. But because of the heat that we've seen in these cells, some on, on these hot summer days, some of these cells reach internal temperatures of 120, 130. We know of at least one instance where the inside of a facility was 149 degrees. So that has led these advocates to say it's not a mystery why we're seeing uh, the, these uh, people die so suddenly and so tragically, and they're calling for change. And one of the things you've highlighted in the previous reporting that I don't think everyone understands is that uh, this impacts more than just the inmates, correct? Sure. Imagine going to work there every day. I've talked to former and, and current correctional officers who say that they are scared for their health just putting on the uniform and going to work. I, I talked to one former TDCJ employee who said that he saw ambulances come daily for inmates and weekly for correctional officers. Imagine that, that you are walking the rounds in these unconditioned prisons every day in a stab-proof vest and a full uniform. It, it's, it's hard, demanding, dangerous work, not just because of the environment they're in, but because of the heat that they are surrounded by. So this has led to serious staffing challenges for TDCJ. Uh, they are facing uh, an attrition rate for first-year officers that reaches 40%. They have thousands of open officer positions because they can't attract or keep people who want to work in these conditions. And Ryan, one of the things about this bill in the session, there was bipartisan support, right? That's right. The Texas House did show wide bipartisan efforts to try and amend this issue. There was a bill that would regulate the temperatures inside TDCJ prisons to be between 65 and 85 degrees. That passed 124 to 24, with Democrats and Republicans standing emphatically behind it. When it went over to the Senate, it failed to get out of committee. All right, Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you. A second chance, thanks to the pandemic. Struggle is easy to get in and it's hard to get out of. Now, after years of uncertainty, while proving he deserves to remain free, we catch up with one Texan enjoying milestones he thought he would never see behind bars. New life for thousands of people convicted of low-level federal crimes, then released during the pandemic. They will not have to go back to prison. A recent decision by the Department of Justice ends lingering uncertainty for one person we've followed for years. It, it really hadn't sunk in yet. 
This is already Kendrick Fulton's 20th year in federal custody, serving 33 years for selling cocaine. State of Texas reporter Matt Grant first met Fulton two years ago in Round Rock after he was released to home confinement as part of the CARES Act to help slow the spread of COVID in prisons. Now a judge has now reduced his sentence to 25 years with credit for time served and good behavior. Fulton, who now lives in Arlington and works full time as a truck driver, says he will be free at the end of the year. He just turned 50 and watched his daughter graduate college. Guys, the limit. I can actually get my own truck, you know, so I'm just, I'm just excited. You know, it's uh, you know, it's been a long time, Matt. You know, I'm just excited about uh, great big things to come. Trouble is easy to get in and it's hard to get out of through adversity. Adversity, what you go through or what happens in your life don't have to define you. You know, you can always get better by a situation. The Bureau of Prisons says more than 13,000 inmates were released to home confinement nationwide since 2020, including nearly 2,000 from Texas. A small fraction, just over 500, returned to prison for unspecified violations. With word President Joe Biden was ready to officially declare the pandemic over, this year the Department of Justice issued a final ruling allowing those released under the CARES Act to remain in home confinement for the rest of their sentence as long as they're compliant with all conditions of supervision. Fulton's case was given another look due to the First Step Act of 2018 that allows the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010, which reduces cocaine sentences, to apply retroactively. You can keep track of the big stories in state politics with our weekly State of Texas podcast. We have a link online now in the Texas politics section of our website. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Josh Hinkle. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.